Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The last five years have seen a remarkable set of powerful movements and trying circumstances. Me Too, the incomplete racial reckoning that followed George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's killings by police, the Trump presidency, and now the comprehensive rejection by the Supreme Court of the federal right to an abortion in the Dobbs case. Into this mix comes a new exhibit at the Oakland Museum of California, Hella Feminist, which features the work of contemporary artists responding to these times in an examination of historical items from the museum's archive. The exhibit challenges visitors to interrogate the history and conception of feminism. We'll talk with the curators and you about what feminism is and needs to be in this moment. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Oakland Museum's new exhibit, Hella Feminist, was scheduled to open two years ago to mark the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed women the federal right to vote, though only some could make good on that constitutional promise. The pandemic pushed the opening into a drastically changed climate for women and pregnant people after the Supreme Court overturned the federal right to an abortion, arguing that it wasn't deeply embedded in the history of the country by drawing on pre-19th Amendment precedents. With reasoning like that, it's a fraught moment for all who are not cis, heterosexual, white men with mainstream religious and cultural beliefs. The kind of moment, perhaps, for a renewed and powerful feminist movement to address. Joining us to talk about this new exhibit, Hella Feminist, we're joined by the three curators of the exhibit. Karen Adams is curator of art at OMCA. Welcome, Karen. Hi. Erendina Delgadillo is consulting curator on the Hella Feminist exhibit at the Oakland Museum. Welcome. Thank you so much. Good morning. And Lisa Silberstein is co-curator of the Hella Feminist exhibit. Morning. Nice to be here. Lisa, let's uh, start with you. How did you have to reconceptualize or how did you attempt to reconceptualize the exhibit when you realized you'd be working in a really different cultural moment? Yeah, well... What happened at the pause, uh, when we had to pause the exhibition um, due to coronavirus, we realized that we could go back to some of the collaborators and artists that we've been working with and share with them about our exhibition and ask them what had changed for them in this time period. Um, This exhibition is really about a contemporary response to feminism. And because the moment had passed, we really wanted to have an opportunity to get back with those folks 
and see where they were at and see what minor shifts or adjustments we could make to the show because we wanted it to reflect the moment we were in. Yeah. So Karen Adams, uh, curator of art, you go back to the artist uh-huh. and you say, all right, you get a second chance. You can rethink what you were going to do. Is that something that people were like excited about or were they crushed by? or how, What was the response? Oh, I I think um, I think all of our collaborators saw it as an opportunity. Um, it was also really reaffirming because there was so much that was that still felt relevant, that still felt urgent and um, necessary. So that that part of it, the the bringing back together of everybody to be able to uh, think about the present moment and also where who we were, what we what we had been doing. Um, it wasn't the major significant shift, I guess, um, in all of the contributors' projects. But um, but I think, yeah, it, it wasn't as much of a complete redo as maybe we're making it sound. I think we the coming back together led to um, expanded ideas about the role of joy and grief Hmm. and um we definitely had a chance to include some some artwork that hadn't been part of the original Mm -hmm. plan but um i think it it was definitely reaffirming to hear from the artists that they felt like we were still speaking to the moment yeah and dina with the historical objects that are in the exhibit could, do you think the same objects could speak to both moments, but maybe just with a slightly different interpretive lens? Or did you feel like maybe we should swap things out or maybe a different set of objects would make more sense? Or how did you approach that? Mm. We, um, you know, when we started the project, we were really intentional about pulling only from our own collection to represent those, mm-hmm. um, you know, stories from the past that to us from, again, this contemporary perspective represented feminist principles and ways of organizing and working. Um, so the, the stories themselves didn't change too much. We didn't really shift the way that we were interpreting those moments in history. Um, but I think what, what did come out of the convening, um, like Karen mentioned, was a, a sort of understanding that this moment that we live in is heavy, right? These two, three years that we've experienced together have brought, <laughs> you know, a lot of um, uncertainty and sort of anxiety and grief. And so the convening participants asked that we create moments, um, you know, where we could to both recognize those heavy feelings and help visitors process them where possible. Um, And so that helped us, I think, you know, the exhibition is organized into three sections, mind, body, and spirit, and you go through them in that order. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mind is, you know, sort of the most dense, you'll find, um, you know, most of the historical material lives there. Um, and there were still some, some stories of, um, you know, again, you know, taken from history, rooted here in the East Bay that are in body, and there were a few in mind, and we decided to remove some of the more sort of heady material that was in mind, excuse me, in body and spirit, mm-hmm. in order to create an experience that started you know in your head there's a lot of information to take in there and then slowly sort of released and and made more space for people to there's there's a lot of really emotionally poignant work in that spirit Mm -hmm. section and so it felt like it helped the conversation helped us be intentional about 
um, sort of balancing the intellectual with the emotional and leaving a lot more space in the spirit section for folks to just sort of feel and be held in that experience. We are talking about the Oakland Museum of California's Hella Feminist exhibit and what feminism means in this moment. We're joined by Erendina Delgadillo, the consulting curator of the Hella Feminist exhibit, Karen Adams, curator of art there at the museum, and Lisa Silberstein, co-curator of the exhibit as well. We'd love to hear from you. What does it mean to be feminist in this moment? And have these last few years, the different major changes that we've seen with the pandemic, Me Too, racial reckoning, has your definition of feminism changed or expanded? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Eight, six. I know all these curators are very interested in having this be a conversation with people who are um, you know, confronting these issues and organizing in this moment. The social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, one of the things that is in the exhibit, kind of in this, uh, on this theme of grief and, and loss and, uh, you know, kind of collective care, is a number where people can call in and leave their stories or leave their, their their emotions and listen to other people's. Um, so why do you want to set this up? And then we're going to listen to a couple of the recordings. I'm happy to give a bit of oh. background. Oh, I'm okay. sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a new element that came in post uh you know, the second convening, that second conversation we had with collaborators, again, wanting to hold space for some of the uncomfortable feelings that we've all been holding for the last few years. And um, like you said there, one of the the themes, especially in in the mind section is sort of collective care and collective education. Um, I remember during the pandemic, there was a phone line, I don't remember where it was, um, where some elementary school, you know, in this country um, had students leave messages of support and encouragement, just sort of in general for all of us. Um, and I thought that was a really kind gesture. And and knowing that, you know, this Dobbs decision was looming, that, you know, all of the sort of new legislation restricting um, gender identity and sort of people making choices, you know, um, about their own bodies, that sort of attack on bodily autonomy that's... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of ramping up, um, that it would, we had opportunity to invite visitors, you know, most of the folks who call in have been local, mm-hmm. um, to offer their experiences around those issues, especially I think around um, reproductive justice, when so many of those stories are sort of hidden or, <clears throat> excuse me, shameful, um, to leave an anonymous, you know, to offer an anonymous space where folks could, could share their own experiences. Yeah. And there are, you know, wide range of experiences that folks have offered and some words of encouragement for people going through, you know, a similar experience. So again, an opportunity to sort of try to build and connect community. Great. Let's um, listen into a few of those messages. I had a child when I was 17. I grew up in a very small town and never had a good relationship with my mother. So I never really had any education around sex or anything. So I had a child. I got pregnant when I was 16. I had my child when I was 17. And when I was 18, I became a sex worker because I was a young... Hi, 
I have a beautiful one-year-old daughter, and um, the day that Roe versus Wade was overturned, very upset, so um, I decided I needed to channel that and write her a poem. Um, so I'm sharing it here, and maybe it will be a source of comfort for our next generation. May she know joy beyond measure. May she know love, profound and unconditional. May she feel held by earth and mineral, sky and cloud. Lisa Silverstein, as uh, we've listened to these phone messages, you also have a, a big board that's up in the exhibit, kind of giving people a chance to sort of reflect on their relationship to, to feminism as well. Have there been things that have surprised you about what people have wanted to share? I wouldn't say that things that surprised me. I, I, so this interactive is an opportunity for people to answer sort of three different prompts. One is, um, I'm a feminist and I'm a feminist, but, and I'm not a feminist, but. And I don't think it surprised me. I think what has been really interesting is just how, you know, feminism is such a complex, I don't want to say controversial, but complicated word and different people have different relationship to it, um, identify, don't identify. And I feel like we wanted to provide people with the opportunity to reflect on that as they're entering this exhibition and thinking about what they're bringing to it um, and what they're hoping to, you know, engage with around the word feminism and how they identify. I I wouldn't say I'm surprised by any of the responses. I, th- I think they're really interesting and I think it really gets at um, the nuances and how personal and, you know, different this is for people depending on who you are and where you're from and what your life experience has been. Yeah. We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's Hella Feminist exhibit and what feminism means in this moment with Lisa Silberstein, co-curator of the Hella Feminist exhibit, and Andina Delgadillo, consulting curator, and Karen Adams, curator of art at the museum. We'd love to hear your answer, maybe to the exhibit prompts that Lisa just described. I'm a feminist, but or I'm a feminist and, or I'm not a feminist, but the number's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's Hella Feminist exhibit and what feminism means in this moment with that exhibit's curators. Ed Andina Delgadillo, consulting curator. 
I wanted to ask you about this task of going back through, you know, the museum's holdings to kind of trace a feminist arc through the collections. I mean, how'd you go about that task? And, you know, how big is the museum arc? Just give us a sense of, like, what it was to try to pull out these particular items. Um, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We have really tremendous um, colleagues in the collections department who have worked for <laughs> quite a long time to offer curators greater access to the material in, in our collections. And so it was a partnership, of course, between the three of us and our colleagues in collections to um, find stories, again, that from primarily women who whose actions represented sort of feminist principles as we understand them today, but didn't necessarily consider themselves or call themselves feminists in, you know, mm -hmm. um, while they were alive or in the work that they were doing. So we looked at, you know, we had a few leads and part of the, the convening conversation, the initial one was to, um, you know, to sort of workshop some of the historical ideas and little vignettes that we were building out and ask, you know, our community members if there were any um, sort of, you know, stories from their families or um, things that we wouldn't necessarily have found in history textbooks. And that was our goal, right, to highlight those undertold stories of everyday feminist resistance in the East Bay. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of those, <clears throat> there was a lot of fun to to, to sort of uh, develop an interpretive framework that allowed us to read some of those actions and women as feminist. One of the people that we just fangirled over super hard for years now <laughs> is a woman named Toni Stone, <clears throat> excuse mm. me, who was the first woman to play uh, in the you know, national, um, excuse me, professional baseball in the United States. She played in the Negro Leagues, but it was a professional league then. Mm -hmm. um, she came from St. Louis in the 19, early 1950s. Um, to care for her sister here in Oakland, you know, by way of a family member, met someone who um, was in the Negro Leagues and invited her to play. She was an excellent player. Hmm. And again, she never considered herself feminist, but she only played for two years within um, the Negro Leagues, playing for the San Francisco Sea Lions and then the um, Indianapolis Clowns. And finally, the, oh, I think they were the Kentucky Monarchs. Um, hmm. And, you know, she in small and, you know, occasionally larger ways, continued to live her life on her terms, which again, mm -hmm. that sort of self-determination is a big part of how we understand feminism now, or a tenant of contemporary feminism. She, you know, refused to wear skirts on the field and wore pants just like her other, um, not co-workers, <laughs> <laughs> team members. Team members, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Colleagues, <laughs> colleagues, yeah. Um, you know, she was they were trying for a bit to leverage her, you know, marketing wise to get people excited to go see this first woman. And she was pretty resistant against that. And then decided, you know, only two years into playing that she would, you know, made the decision to leave the field, to leave um, baseball entirely. She became an educator here in Oakland because her last manager refused to play her because she was a woman. Mm. You know, she had this excellent, you know, sort of worldly, or I imagine like, you know, an experience that, contributed to her worldview and like worldly experiences and, you know, decided to end it on her terms when, you know, what that, that community was asking from her didn't align with her own sense of herself and her own values. So small stories like that are peppered throughout, um, in particular, the mind section. Um, yeah, and it, it was a lot of fun to sort of imagine what, um, or to, to sort of build a tapestry of stories um, 
that are, you know, we were, we were intentional about trying to find examples of folks who could offer inspiration to people today, right? So not shying away from conflict or struggle, but, um, you know, trying to show even in that struggle, small moments where um, people were able to, again, sort of live on their own terms, yeah. which feels really important now. I mean, always, but now especially. <laughs> let's, uh, let's bring in a caller, Leslie in Bellinas. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Um, I, um, um, I'm not at all confused by feminism. Feminism. I know that people do get tangled up in it. But um, I was at Berkeley in the 70s, early 70s, um, as a student, and when it all started to spring forth in a new way. And my perception of feminism was that it liberated not only women, but men in particular from traditional roles. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if this exhibited at all. That's a that's an interesting question, uh, Leslie. Thanks so much, uh, Karen. Do you maybe want to uh, tackle that one? Yeah, I'm I'm listening and thinking about my own experience and um, my mother's experience of of that time period. And um, you know, I think the the way that we crafted this. Um, exhibition project was really in conversation with um, with the artists that we uh, were working with and the community that we brought into our convenings and there isn't uh, a singular spot in the exhibition to point to and say that um, you know we're illuminating the experience of men in the conversation about feminism but we are very intentional and take people on a pathway through um, an experience that really tries to make the argument that feminism is for everybody. Yeah. Could you maybe uh, talk a little bit about, you know, you do go through the traditional representation of feminism as in a, in a series, you know, in waves kind of suffragettes and into second wave feminism and third and, and fourth. And maybe you could focus just for a second to, to Leslie's question on how you chose to represent third wave feminism, you know, in this sort of microcosm in the exhibit. Right. So in in the wave section of the exhibition, we we knew that part of our task was to try to explain even what that means. But we were a little resistant to it, um, presenting it like a linear time frame, like a um, like, you know, on this date, this happened, and this person represents those ideas. Um, and we were trying to be more expansive, to reframe, really, what does it mean to be feminist from from that point of view? And um, you and I had a conversation in the gallery, and you were asking me, why is, why is Ruth Asawa part of third wave feminism? And I was trying to... Explain. And for those who don't know, these yeah. kind of beautiful... Um, they're like air sculptures. Well, I don't know exactly how to describe. Them. Yeah, I mean, Ruth Asawa is, is known for her amazing ethereal but monumental um, public artworks and um, intricately woven uh, sculptures that that suspend or hang or you know occupy space and create shadow. She's really a um, you know a titan mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Bay Area art and modernism and. Um, I don't know that I've really seen her work presented in the context of feminism, but I think of her as, an, you know, our project and the way that we were trying to frame feminist action includes her. I mean, she was um, 
raising a family, being an artist and an educator in a way that um, expanded, I think, feminist action. So that was that's part of the the way that we're trying to reframe what uh, what those waves that are often talked about in really concrete terms. Um, yeah. Well, and you also brought in, and Andy, and I think you worked with them, the, um, the a, a group to help you work with this, the Church of Black Feminist Thought, to to complicate this idea of the waves of feminism. Yes, we were really fortunate um, to be able to work with the, the Church of Black Feminist Thought. It's a project um, led by two PhD students, Ram Malaika Imhotep and um, Miyuki Baker. They were uh, PhD students at the time in, at Berkeley, and they've since defended their dissertations and um, received their doctorates. But they organized, I think, um, starting in t- 2018, study groups to look at, um, you know, co- to collectively try to understand um, some of the Black feminist theorists that they were learning about in class, or maybe not. And they developed, they um, created what they called theory maps, a sort of visual way of mapping the theories and ideas of some of these um, feminist scholars, primarily black women. Um, And we knew (laughs) that visitors wouldn't necessarily feel satisfied with an exhibition on feminism if we didn't present in some way, you know, the sort of four waves of feminism, first, second, third, and the one that we're in now, although it seems to be shifting a bit. Um, and that we as an institution hold a really different role than someone else, you know, another sort of voice that we are able to invite into that conversation. So we, you know, there are, um, in our presentation of the waves, we're, um, we took some measures to try to make it clear that, you know, a, a, a discrete delineation, you know, by time of, um, you know, feminist history or the evolution of feminism um, is, you know, a little bit squishy. Some of the time frames that we give, you know, we say 1800s-ish, you know, sort of making it clear that again, making, you know, chunking it out into a discrete um, moments that build on each other in a, in a clear way is not, um, you know, the lived experience primarily of, you know, mm-hmm. folks of color, women of color. And so we invited them into minor collection to find objects that would offer a complementary and in some cases challenging addition to um, you know our own institutional voice and the way that we were presenting the history of feminism. And so they built their um, response primarily around the experience of a woman named, um, oh my goodness. Catherine Smith. Catherine Thank you Smith. so much, <laughs> Catherine Smith. Her, her nickname was in, I got Kitty, but <laughs> the rest of her name was not there. Uh, she was an enslaved, you know, woman who came to Oakland, found freedom through community, um, and we have a number of her materials in the collection. And so they they, you know, invoked their study group again, developed a theory map around her life, and sort of inserting it into their own um, representation of Black feminist history. And we were really, yeah, grateful for their, you know, insight for their expertise, and again for offering. Um, a really generous counterpoint to that linear um, understanding of feminism that has been, from what we understand, harmful, especially for for women of color and feminists of color trying to enter the movement, or at least be, um, yeah, sort of welcomed in or or trying to work in partnership with groups Mm -hmm. that have have been a lot more visible um, in feminist history. 
We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's Hella Feminist exhibit and what feminism means in this moment. We're joined by Erendina Delgadillo, the consulting curator of the Hella Feminist exhibit, Karen Adams, curator of art at the museum, and Lisa Silverstein, who is co-curator. We do want to hear from you. We're going to take some more of your calls shortly here. Have you seen the exhibit? We'd love to hear your reactions, of course. But we also are interested in this broader conversation of, you know, what does it mean to be a feminist in this moment, in a post-Roe world, in a post-Me Too world? The phone number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And you can email your questions or your comments, of course, to forum at kqed.org. Let's bring in Christine in Sunnyvale. Welcome, Christine. Hi, good morning. Um, I just have a quick comment and a question. Good morning. Um, my comment is that my husband's great aunt many years ago had a T-shirt that read feminism, the radical notion that women are people too, which I totally love. She was like 80 years old. Um, and I just really excited to see the exhibit. I was wondering, my question is, is that, do you, tur- do you have anything on, and I'm sure you do, the ERA and talking mm-hmm. about the people that were big in that time during, during that movement with Phyllis Schlafly on the right, mm-hmm. and then people like Shirley Chisholm, who's the first black, you know, nominated woman president, and just, you know, talking a little bit, you know, it's big sure. now with the Mrs. America, you know, uh, docudrama, which talks a lot about the ERA and how it's not even ratified. So that's my question. Thank you yeah, so much great, for doing your exhibit. Really great excited. question, Christine. Uh, talking about ERA, the Equal uh, Rights Amendment, of right. course. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about this. It, it's a bracelet, right? The ERA bracelet is what sort of represents that as as an object. Yeah, it looks almost like something Wonder Woman would have worn. <laughs> On TV. Bring them back. I was yeah. surprised you didn't have that as merch in the in the in the shop. I know, I know, I know. I think it would sell well. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about it. Um, I, you know, that the bracelet that um that you're referring to, it's in the section um on the second wave of feminism, and it it's uh, clustered together with other with other artifacts in our collection. Somebody sitting. Um, tabling at that moment, um, an incredible piece by Gaza Bowen um, called Tough Scuffs, where the artist um, used her image, um, you know, uh, dressed in the persona of a, um, a house house cleaner, and she made a pair of shoes out of... Uh, like high heels. Yeah, it's like a high heel made out of a scrub brush. It's incredibly funny. Um so, you know, the, that moment in feminist history is touched on in that context in the waves. But um, in terms of uh, people who participated in that moment in history, a lot, you know, some of their faces will show up in the work of Miriam Kleinstahl, whose um, project with Kate Schatz is called Work. And it's just across the way from... Um, from the wave section, and um, it's it's you know focused on some well-known people, but it also includes plenty of people who are not well-known, um, who are kind of everyday feminists of the of the East Bay, mm-hmm. and that's 
the um, really a focus, I think, of this exhibition. People who are um, not as well known, who weren't the ma- necessarily the major figures of any movement, but are um, actively participating in the conversation. You know, Lisa, I thought maybe you could, you know, our, our caller there, Christine, you know, I think people come into an exhibit like this, and I think they're expecting, perhaps, like I, I know I was this way, you're kind of expecting to see a few different historical highlights that they may know or that are, you know, been crucial to their own experience. Um, but the exhibit kind of tries to frustrate that idea, I think, a little bit of like that you're just going to come in and kind of have like a miniature encyclopedia of like important characters and uh, and events. Yeah, I think, you know, for us it, working on this project, we really were thinking about this as a response to this moment that we're in, that we're touching on, you know, historical feminism, but we're really looking at what's happening right now. And I think because we're the Oakland Museum of California, we're in the East Bay, I think we really wanted to focus on lesser known stories of everyday feminism, um, everyday acts of resistance that we equate with feminism. And that's our interpretation of this moment. And um, you will, as Karen said, see some local feminists that you probably have heard of, people that are in the community right now, people who are no longer with us. But um, for the most part, we're not, you know, there are plenty of other, um, you know, places where you can get the national story, you can get, um, you know, a a deep knowledge of um, feminist history from the beginning. And this was really an opportunity for us to look at this everyday feminism and also hyper local and um, people that you may not know about and to learn a little bit more about folks that have been, you know, not acknowledged um, by history. Yeah. One, one really great one is uh, Flo Allen, who was uh, an art model, like a fine art model, right, who then created uh, the Bay Area Models Guild to sort of support people who were uh, working in, in this way in a, in a solidaristic effort. Yeah. And we have a lot of um, pieces by artists of Flo in our collection. And so we wanted to highlight her and that story. She's someone who grew up in Oakland. Um, and, you know, her work lives on in this model guild, even though she's no longer alive. She you know, really advocated for, to started this, mod, you know, there were models that existed and she started this guild and that lives on today. And um, and she lives on in these images of her that um, are in our collection. She was a yeah. powerful person. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's Hella Feminist exhibit and what feminism means in this moment with curators of the show. We've got Lisa Silberstein, Erendina Delgadillo, and Karen Adams, who's also curator uh, of art at OMCA. And... Loving hearing from you, too, about how your definitions of feminism have changed or expanded through time. 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Oakland Museum of California's Hella Feminist exhibit and what feminism means to you right now. I wanted to go a little bit deeper into a couple of the really stunning works that are in the exhibit. Um, Karen Adams, curator of art. Angela Hennessy is an artist who works a lot with black hair, and she's also a death doula, and she she has displayed at the exhibit right now this pretty remarkable work called The Morning Wreath. Could you sort of describe, imagine we're sitting right in front of it and we're looking at it. Can you describe it for us? And then we're going to play the a piece of the sort of meditation that she wrote around it. Yes. So Angela Hennessy with Oakland Museum of California is so lucky that she wanted to participate in this exhibition. The Morning Wreath is a monumental sculpture. It, it's a... Uh, some people might be familiar with Victorian mourning jewelry that was crafted from um, the hair of, uh, you know, a beloved person who passed. And But the mourning wreath is, um, you know, larger than life. It's scaled, you know, to, to be... Probably about 10 foot. Yeah, it's about yeah. 10 feet in diameter. Um, intricately woven and um, tufted and um, full of um, amazing little moments where you can see the way that Angela's hand, um, you know, tied it in and wove it, and there are um, tendrils down to the ground. Um, it's a really incredible moving piece just um, as an object, really. But um, for for Hello Feminist, Angela recorded um, an incredible um, meditation on grief. It was something that um, she had the time to think about, and when we reconvened, she was really struck by um, how important it would be to acknowledge the role of grief um, in this moment. Just imagine you're sitting in front of this monumental morning wreath, and let's listen in. Grieve on the daily. Make time every day to grieve. Make grieving out of everyday gestures. Make folding the laundry grieving. Make sweeping the floor grieving. Make dancing grieving. Crying is beneficial, but not required. Just say, I'm grieving right now while you are doing whatever you are doing. Say what it is you are grieving and be specific. I'm grieving gun violence. I'm grieving another black person killed by police. I'm grieving black bodies left in the street. I'm still grieving slavery. I'm grieving enslaved people buried in unmarked graves. I'm grieving grief that was never grieved. I'm grieving the Buffalo massacres. I'm grieving that I stand here on stolen land. I'm grieving the existential crisis that is this country, America, Turtle Island. I'm grieving gold and black things, extractions and commodities of the colonial project. I'm grieving hairdressers who keep trying to colonize my hair. I'm grieving my auntie who died, but no one wanted to say she died. So we stood around her dead body, knowing what we didn't want to know as if we didn't know it goes on uh, longer than that as well. It's this beautiful 
piece with this resonant voice, and you kind of see the intersectional weaving of different concerns there. And Dina, like, just to make the connection clear, like, what do you think is feminist about grieving? Hmm. Um, I think that this moment in feminism, finally, thanks to the continued efforts of feminists and other folks who have been sort of pushed to the margins, um, at least, you know, in the sort of more pop culture or the conversations that have sort of pierced pop culture around feminism, um, you know, have helped to make this moment really holistic, right? So we're looking at, I mean, intersectional is one way to frame that, but we're really looking at the full lived experience of what it means to be gendered, what it means to be racialized, what it means to be sexualized, um, you know, on terms that aren't necessarily your own, right? So white supremacy, patriarchy, those sort of dominant systems are the ones that have been, you know, defining what it means, in all, you know, to exist in all those categories. And um, and so one of the, the tenets of, you know, feminism today that we've focused on in particular in spirit is, you know, sort of holistic wellness, right? So mental wellness, spiritual wellness, physical wellness, just looking, not having to segment out your experience again into inorganic, discrete, <laughs> like separate um, ways of engaging in the world. But, um, but I think offering for visitors an opportunity to look at themselves fully and appreciate themselves fully and then hoping to use those muscles to likewise embrace, you know, the sort of full humanity of the people that they're working with or working for or trying to create, um, you know, sort of movements with um, if that makes sense. So grief feels like, you know, it's, it's, I think it's especially something that we're not used to discussing, much less processing, especially as a collective within Western society. And so bringing in some of these ancient indigenous practices, global practices, um, feels like a way to offer balance, which feels incredibly needed at the moment. Um, and just in the sort of the ways that I was raised, um, you know, I, I was taught that you need that sort of emotional and spiritual grounding in order to do anything in the world, right? In order to do it well um, and to do it in a way that really aligns with your values and principles. And so that's sort of where I think grief fits in is mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. a sort of holistic representation of who you are and then, you know, being able to, to offer that same full humanity to, to the people, you know, in your communities. Let's bring in Mary from Mill Valley. He wants to talk about a different kind of balance. Hi, thank you. I wanted to just, number one, say my compliments to the three curators. They sound very sophisticated and eloquent in how they're presenting the show. So it sounds like something very beautiful to go to. So I'm going to take my 104-year-old mother there, <laughs> who is a nationally collected painter. Wow. And have her impressions because she's seen a lot. And she was trying to get into art school to finish her master's at the age of 65, and she was denied by UC Berkeley because they said she was too old. So she went to the San Francisco Art Institute and became a nationally collected painter. At her first show, they were drawing straws, a couple of national, you know, foundations trying to get her paintings. So she hmm. finished painting about a couple of years ago, but she's had a very interesting career in looking at things as feminism, and she brought me into it. And one of the things that I think we need to think about when you're asking about this age of feminism and how it's changing, is unless we find the masculine side of ourselves and balance that, 
as well as the feminine, and then take the men too and let them balance the feminine side of themselves as well as the masculine, I think we're not going to get there. I think it takes us both to find the balance within each other. And I think the pandemic is actually making us look at what are the roles that we play. And I think it's a very powerful time to look at that rebalancing and was curious if perhaps in the future you could do any type of show about that. Well, maybe some of the works uh, in the exhibit actually speak speak to that. Thank you so much, uh, Mary and Mill Valley. Best to your mom as well. It's quite an achievement. Uh, make it to 104. Thank you. Um, I yeah. Do who wants to speak to that? To like, do do you feel like some of these works uh, address that either in in passing or, or head on? Hmm. I think the the um, the time that Mary was speaking, I was just um, thinking to myself that this exhibition could spur on so many different exhibitions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so many different ways um, to talk about this topic, and we've um, known all along that there needs to be more shows to delve into it. Um, um, thinking, looking at Lisa across the room from me, <laughs> um, how, would we, how would we answer that question? What, what addresses Mary's thing directly? I, I mean, I think that part of what we're offering is this idea, I mean, the premise that we took with this exhibition was that, um, you know, feminism is a series of strategies um, that, you know, are meant to that kind of play out in your, you know, meant to achieve equity for all genders and all people, um, you know, that play out in the mind, body and spirit. And so I think, you know, in some ways, it's not like we don't talk about this balance between the masculine and the feminine, but I think it's like inherently woven into all of the, you know, a lot of the elements and mm-hmm. pieces in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that sense of balance and what Arandina was talking about with, you know, things are not balanced right now. I think we all feel that. And I, f- I think we all are, are hungering and desiring for more balance and a sense that things are, you know, things are askew and we want to write. We want to write ourselves on some level, um, and it is going to take all of us. It, it's not just incumbent upon some of us to do this work. We all have to be participating in um, making things, you know, writing that balance and, and trying to build the world that we want to see. Mm-hmm. Got a question for you from Melody in Richmond. Welcome, Melody. Hi, thank you. Um, I've had a career in the Bay Area in museums and art centers for about 15 years now, starting at the San Jose Museum of Art, the Palo Art Center, uh, SFMOMA, and now the Headland for the Art. Oh. And in my experience, um, I've, I've seen a, a wide range of uh, mega museums and small uh, art centers and how their permanent collection still seems to be predominantly men, and that seems to be mostly uh donors and um, collectors, and I don't know how much in terms of directors uh, that that influences the curator's ability to acquire more women artists. Um, If there are metrics that you have at the Oakland Museum in terms of increasing your women artists uh, collection, permanent collection, and if there are long-term goals for um, making that more open to people of color and trans artists. Oh, definitely. Um, Karen, yeah, is that, is that you, Karen? Yeah, this is yes. Karen. Um, 
So th- those are great questions and ones that we've been grappling with for, for years. I've, I've been at the Oakland Museum for 16 years, and um, you know, we, we're so fortunate to have an amazing director, Lori Fogarty, who's been leading the charge to really transform what it means to be a community museum. Um, and that expands into the collection. And, you know, the Oakland Museum was founded by the bringing together of three different institutions, natural science, art, and history um, institutions to form one. And our collection is vast, um, millions of things, um, artworks and, and artifacts and specimens. And, you know, we've just been working really hard to shift what um, comes into the collection, which is owned by the people of Oakland. So it needs to reflect who's who's in the Bay. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, so, of, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to. Um, one of the exciting parts of working on the show for me has been offering where we could a bit of transparency around exactly what stories are missing in the collection. Um, there's a, and, and sort of looking at, because we're a cultural institution and we encode history, right. And sort of meaning making, um, what happens when folks whose lived experiences make them experts in the objects and artifacts and artworks that we're bringing into the collection, what happens when they're excluded? Uh, there's a, a poster, um, that was cataloged by a man. It shows it's advertising, uh, hormonal birth control shows a man and a woman naked embracing and the text at the top reads better loving through chemistry and at the bottom left there's a it's black and white there's an image of a birth control um one of those pill packets sort of in you know circle and the man who cataloged it misidentified that object as a telephone rotary dial (laughs) so it was really funny to us as a group obviously a little bit disturbing knowing that something that's really straightforward from someone who has like a personal relationship or is like much closer to that object and the stories around that object, you know, it's very obvious for folks, um, again, whose lived experience mm-hmm. <laughs> reflects, you know, that, um, or who, who are closer to that object. But it, you know, it's, so it w- there are a few moments there where we're, we talk about the absences in our collection. Um, and again, try to model the kind of transparency and like leading with learning as a cultural okay. institution to try to shift those collecting policies. Let's bring in uh, Lena in Berkeley. Welcome, Lena. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, hi, Karen. Hi. And other <laughs> hi. <laughs> I, I just, I, I was, I've been listening to the conversation, and I had a response for the woman two calls back, who was, you know, about talking balancing about the masculine need to, yeah. about balancing masculine feminine, and just to say that, you know, the queer community demonstrates that, lives it, mm. um, models that for us all the time, and that um, I think any of the artworks in the exhibition, you know, by queer people or representations of, you know, trans or non-binary people, that that embodies exactly that. Um, So just to say, I felt like there was kind of an empty gap after that question. And I think that it's definitely present. And, um, and we can thank the queer community for for, for, for demonstrating and embodying that and making that more possible. Yeah. Um, stay with us, though, because I, I want to ask you, how about your work? What's your, what's your piece in the exhibit? Can you describe it to people? Oh, well, I was one of the later people to be included in the exhibition, uh, mostly following the Roe decision. Um, I have a studio practice where I make objects, but I've also worked on a series of public posters that have 
spread across the country in um, past election seasons. So I've worked on a series of vote posters over the years. And this year, the 2000, the 2022 vote posters that I made in collaboration with Hope Meng, two of the six that we designed this year on view, uh, Vote for Reproductive Freedom and Vote for Trans Rights, mm-hmm. um, are in the show. And they're the posters, there's a few thousand of them at the museum that they're giving away for free. Um, and I love actually how the curators hung the posters. Um, it's kind of in a circular format. So mm-hmm. Vote for Reproductive Freedom is paired with trans rights, and then, and then it's sort of a grid of four. And then mm-hmm. underneath Reproductive Freedom is trans rights. Underneath trans rights is Reproductive Freedom, showing how those two things are interconnected. And through bodily um, autonomy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I um for for those who haven't seen these posters yet, I just want to say they're also extremely beautiful. I mean, these are this is, these are it, they really are works of art that you can take home from the museum. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for for listening and for for calling in. Um, we we really appreciate that. The last thing I wanted to do is another artist, only because. Uh, Sandra, Sandra Ibarra's work, you know, with the persona La Chica Boom is so good and so interesting and also seems to be kind of, uh, mashed together many of the different things that we have been talking about. Lisa, do you want to talk a, a, a little bit about that work just as we're, uh, heading out? Sure. So, um, Sandra Ibarra, who is an Oakland-based artist, um, we have a couple works of hers in the exhibition. Um, they're, um... Pieces that we have are um, from a persona that she took on that she's no longer um, no longer performing as she was a performing artist um, in addition to like visual artist and um, so the character that one of the characters <clears throat> that she personas that she took on was of a, a cockroach the cucaracha mm-hmm. so we have her um, the and she she has this project so it's called um the spick actasis is one of the pieces where she's physically molting this cockroach costume and then we have the cockroach costume in a um, space saver bag that's attached to a vacuum um where that the vacuum sucks in and out and the costume goes up and down and then also there's an amazing video that um features cannot her be set on air yeah and that cannot be set on air yes the title of it but she it's her um going about her day waking up in the morning going about her day and um putting on her cockroach costume and, and going it's out so to good yes. yes thank you so much for that we've been talking about oakland museum's hella feminist exhibit with its curators karen adams edendina delgadillo and lisa silberstein this hour forums produced by blanca torres grace Wan, and jennifer ing marlena jackson rotondo is our engagement producer judy campbell lead producer our engineers are danny bringer katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, Chris Hoff, and Christopher Beale. Our interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Thank you so much to our guests. Thank you for the exhibition. Thanks for the calls and comments coming in. We appreciate you all. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.